Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 22 A Marriage and Part of a Honeymoon The most obstinate enemies can't hold out against starvation. So the elder Osborne felt pretty confident that as soon as George's supplies fell short, he would submit. It was unlucky, to be sure, that he had collected some money on the very day of the encounter, but old Osborne thought this would merely delay George's surrender. No communication passed between father and son for some days. The former was sulky at this silence, but not disquieted. He told the sisters the upshot of the dispute, but ordered them to take no notice of the matter and to welcome George on his return as if nothing had happened. The old gentleman rather anxiously expected him every day, but he never came. Someone inquired about him at the slaughters, where it was said that he and his friend Captain Dauben had left town. One gusty, raw day at the end of April, the rain whipping the pavement of the ancient street outside the slaughter's coffee-house, George Osborne entered, looking haggard and pale, although dressed rather smartly in a blue coat and brass buttons and a neat buff waistcoat. His friend Captain Dobbin was there, in blue and brass, too. Dobbin had been in the coffee-room for an hour, trying to read the papers— he had looked at the clock scores of times. He drummed at the table. He bit his nails and showed all the signs of anxiety. Some of his comrades there joked about the splendor of his costume and his agitation. One asked him if he was going to be married. Dobbin laughed and said he would send his acquaintance a piece of cake when that happened. At length, Captain Osborne appeared. He wiped his pale face with a pocket-handkerchief, shook hands with Dobbin, looked at the clock, and told John, the waiter, to bring him some curacao. He swallowed a couple of glasses with nervous eagerness. "'Couldn't get a wink of sleep till daylight, Dob,' said he. "'Infernal headache and fever. <laughs> I say, Dob, I feel just as I did on the morning I went out with Rocket at Quebec.' "'So do I.' William responded. I was a deuce deal more nervous than you were that morning. You made a famous breakfast, I remember. Eat something now. Oh, you're a good fellow, Will. I'll drink your health, old boy. And farewell to... No, no. <laughs> Two glasses are enough, Dobbin interrupted. Have some of the fowl. Make haste, though, for it is time we were there. A coach was waiting for them and into this the two gentlemen hurried under an umbrella, and the valet mounted the box, cursing the rain. At least we'll have a better coach outside the church, he said. The carriage drove down Piccadilly, where Apsley House and St. George's Hospital wore red jackets still. 
where there were oil lamps, and the Pimlico Arch was not yet built, and so down by Brompton to a certain chapel near the Fulham Road. A chariot was waiting with four horses, also a large windowed coach of the kind called glass coaches. Oh, hang it, said George. I said only a pair. My master would have four, said Mr. Joseph Sedley's servant, who was there waiting. He and Mr. Osborne's servant agreed, as they followed George and William into the church, that it was a shabby turnout, with scarce so much as a wedding breakfast. "'Here you are,' said our old friend, Joss sadly coming forward. "'You're five minutes late, George, my boy. Oh, "'What a day, eh? "'It's like the rainy season in Bengal. "'But you'll find my carriage is watertight. "'And come along, my, my mother and Emmy are in the vestry.' "'Joss Sedley was splendid.' He was fatter than ever. His shirt collars were higher. His face was redder. His shirt frill flaunted gorgeously out of his variegated waistcoat. The hessians on his beautiful legs shone like mirrors, and on his light green coat there bloomed a fine wedding favor, like a great white spreading magnolia. In a word, George was going to be married. Hence his nervousness and a sleepless night. I have heard several people confess to the same emotion. After three or four ceremonies, you'll get used to it, no doubt. But the first dip, everybody allows, is awful. The bride was dressed in a brown silk pelisse and wore a straw bonnet with a pink ribbon. Over the bonnet, she had a veil of white chantilly lace, a gift from her brother. Captain Dobbin had asked permission to present her with a gold chain and watch, which she wore, and her mother gave her a diamond brooch, almost the only trinket left to the old lady. As the service went on, Mrs. Sedley whimpered a great deal, consoled by the Irish maidservant and Mrs. Clapp from the lodgings. Old Sedley was not present. Joss gave away the bride, whilst Captain Dobbin was groomsman to his friend George. The rain came rattling down on the windows, while the parson's tones echoed sadly through the empty halls. Osborne's, I will, were sounded in very deep bass. Emmy's fluttering response was scarcely heard by anybody except Captain Dobbin. When the service was completed, Joss Sedley kissed his sister, the bride, for the first time in many months. George's look of gloom had gone, and he seemed quite proud and radiant. "'It's your turn, William,' said he. Dobbin went up and touched Amelia on the cheek. Then they went into the vestry and signed the register. "'God bless you, old Dobbin,' George said, grasping him by the hand with tears in his eyes. William only replied by nodding. His heart was too full to say much.' After Mrs. Sedley had taken an hysterical adieu of her daughter, the pair went off to the carriage. "'Get out of the way, you little devils!' George cried to a small crowd of damp urchins. The rain drove into the bride and bridegroom's faces as they walked to the chariot. The children made a dismal cheer as the carriage, splashing mud, drove away. William Dobbin stood in the church porch, looking at it. The small crew of spectators jeered at him. He was not thinking about them or their laughter. 
Come home and have some teflon, Dorman. <laughs> a voice cried behind him as a pudgy hand was laid on his shoulder. But the captain had no heart to go a-feasting with Joss Sedley. He put the weeping old lady and her attendants into the carriage along with Joss, and they too drove away. The urchins gave another sarcastical cheer. Here, you little beggars, Dobbin said, giving them some sixpences, and then he went off by himself through the rain. It was all over. They were married, and happy he prayed God. Never since he was a boy had he felt so miserable and so lonely. He longed with a heart-sick yearning for the first few days to be over so that he might see her again. Some ten days after this ceremony, three young men of our acquaintance were enjoying that beautiful Brighton prospect of bow windows on the one side and blue sea on the other. Sometimes it is towards the smiling ocean, speckled with white sails, that the Londoner looks enraptured. Sometimes it is towards the bow windows and that swarm of human life which they exhibit. From one comes the notes of a piano, which a young lady in ringlets practices six hours daily to the delight of the fellow lodgers. At another, a nursemaid is dandling a baby in her arms, while his papa is devouring the times for breakfast at the window below. Yonder are the Misses Leary, looking out for young men pacing the cliff. Or there is a city man with a telescope pointed seawards, so as to see every boat or bathing machine along the shore. "'What a monstrous fine girl that is over the milliners!' one of these three promenaders remarked. "'Glad, Crawley! Did you see what a wink she gave me?' "'Don't break her heart, Joss, you rascal,' said another. "'Get away!' said Joss sadly, quite pleased and leering up at the maidservant. He was even more splendid at Brighton than he had been at his sister's marriage. Any one of his brilliant under-waistcoats would have set up a moderate dandy. He wore a military frock-coat, ornamented with frogs, knobs, black buttons, and meandering embroidery, for he had affected a military appearance of late, and he walked with his two military friends, clinking his boot spurs, swaggering and shooting death glances at all the servant girls. <laughs> what shall we do, boys, ah, until the ladies who return? <laughs> he asked. The ladies were out at Rottingdean in his carriage for a drive. "'Let's have a game of billiards,' one of his friends said. "'The tall one, with lacquered mustachios. "'Oh, no, dummy!' <laughs> Joss replied, rather alarmed. "'No billiards today, Crawley, my boy. <laughs> "'Oh, yesterday was enough.' "'You play very well,' said Crawley, laughing. "'Don't he, Osborne?' "'Famous!' Osborne said, Dross is a devil of a fellow at billiards, and everything else, too. I wish there were tiger hunting about here, eh? We might kill a few before dinner. <laughs> oh, there goes a fine girl. What an ankle, eh, Joss? Oh, tell us that story about the tiger hunt. It's a wonderful story, that, Crawley. Here, George Osborne yawned. It's rather slow here. Oh, mm. What shall we do? "'Shall we go and look at Snaffler's horses?' Crawley said. 
"'I suppose we go and have some jellies at Dutton's,' said Joss. "'A devilish fine gal at Dutton's. "'Suppose we go and see the lightning come in. "'It's just about time,' George said. "'This advice prevailing, "'they turned towards the coach office "'to witness the lightning's arrival.' As they walked, they met Joss Sedley's magnificent open carriage. Two ladies were in it, one a little person dressed in the height of fashion, the other in a brown silk pelisse and a straw bonnet with pink ribbons, with a rosy, happy face that did you good to behold. She halted the carriage as it neared the three gentlemen, and then began to blush absurdly. "'We have had a delightful drive, George.' she said, and and we're so, we're so glad to come back. Oh, Joseph, don't let him be late. Don't let our husbands into mischief, Mr. Sedley, you wicked man, you, <laughs> Rebecca said, shaking a pretty finger at Joss. No billiards, no smoking, no naughtiness. <laughs> my, uh, my dear Mrs. Crawley, <laughs> upon my honor, <laughs> was all Joss could say, grinning at his victim. As the carriage drove off, he kissed his hand to the fair ladies. He wished all Cheltenham, all Calcutta could see him waving to such a beauty, alongside such a famous buck as Rawdon Crawley of the guards. Our young bride and bridegroom had chosen Brighton to pass the first few days after their marriage, and having engaged apartments at the Ship Inn, enjoyed themselves there quietly until Joss joined them. Nor was he the only companion they found. As they were coming into the hotel one day, whom should they see but Rebecca and her husband? Rebecca flew into the arms of her dearest friend. Crawley and Osborne shook hands cordially enough, and Becky very soon found a way to make George forget that unpleasant passage of words which had happened between them. "'Do you remember the last time we met at Miss Crawley's, "'when I was so rude to you, dear Captain Osborne? "'I thought you seemed careless about dear Amelia. "'It was that made me angry, and so pert and ungrateful. "'Do forgive me,' Rebecca said, "'and she held out her hand so frankly "'that Osborne could not but take it. "'By humbly acknowledging yourself to be in the wrong, "'there is no knowing what good you may do.' "'I once knew a gentleman in Vanity Fair "'who used to do little wrongs to his neighbours on purpose "'in order to apologise for them "'in an open and manly way afterwards, "'and he was always thought to be the honestest fellow.' "'Becky's humility passed for sincerity with George Osborne. "'These two young couples had plenty to tell each other. "'Their marriages were discussed and their prospects in life canvassed with the greatest interest on both sides. George's marriage was to be made known to his father by Captain Dobbin, and young Osborne trembled rather for the result of that news. Miss Crawley, on whom Rawdon's hopes depended, still held out. Unable to enter her house in Park Lane, her affectionate nephew and niece had followed her to Brighton, where they had messengers planted at her door. 
I wish you could see some of Rorden's friends who are always about our door, Rebecca said, laughing. Did you ever see a bailiff, my dear? Two of the wretches watched all last week at the greengrocer's opposite, and we could not get away until Sunday. If Auntie does not relent, what shall we do? Rorden, with roars of laughter, related a dozen amusing anecdotes of his debts and Rebecca's adroit treatment of them. He swore that there was no woman in Europe who could talk a creditor over as she could. They had credit in plenty, but also bills in abundance. Did these difficulties affect Rawdon's good spirits? No! Everybody in Vanity Fair must have remarked how well those live who are comfortably in debt, how they deny themselves nothing— Rodin and his wife had the very best apartments at the inn. The landlord bowed before them, and Rodin abused the dinners and wine with the audacity of a grandee. A manly appearance, faultless boots and clothes, and a happy fierceness of manner will often help a man as much as a large bank balance. The two couples met constantly. In the evening, the gentlemen played a little piquet as their wives sat and chatted. This pastime, and the arrival of Josh Sedley, who played a few games at billiards with Captain Crawley, replenished Rawdon's purse somewhat. So these three gentlemen walked down to see the lightning coach come in. Punctual to the minute, it came tearing down the street and pulled up at the coach office. Hello, there's old Dobbin. George cried, delighted to see his friend. How are you, old fellow? Glad you're come down. Osborne shook his comrade's hand warmly, and then added in a lower and agitated voice, What's the news? Have you been in Russell Square? What does the governor say? Dobbin looked very grave. I've seen your father, said he. How's Amelia? I'll tell you all the news presently, but the greatest news of all is we're ordered to Belgium. "'All the army. O'Dowd goes in command, and we embark from Chatham next week.' This news of war came with a shock upon the lovers, and caused these gentlemen to look very serious. Chapter 23 Captain Dobbin Proceeds on His Canvas under the magnetism of friendships, the modest man becomes bold, the shy confident, the lazy active, and the impetuous prudent. We can be firm for others, though diffident about ourselves, and so William Dobbin, who was so complying that if his parents had pressed him to, he would have married the cook, found himself as busy and eager in George Osborne's affairs as the most selfish man could be in pursuit of his own. Whilst George and his young wife were enjoying the first blushing days of the honeymoon at Brighton, honest William was left in London to transact the business part of the marriage. He had to call upon old Sedley and his wife, to draw Joss and his new brother-in-law nearer together, so that Joss's position as collector of Bogley Walla might compensate for his father's loss of status and help to reconcile old Osborne to the alliance— and finally, he had to tell the news of the marriage to George's father. Now, 
Before he faced the head of the Osborne house, Dobbin thought it would be wise to make friends of the rest of the family, and, if possible, have the ladies on his side. They can't be angry, thought he. No woman ever was really angry at a romantic marriage. They must come round, and the three of us will lay siege to old Mr. Osborne. So, this Machiavellian captain of infantry cast about him for some means by which he could gently bring the Mrs. Osborne to a knowledge of the secret. He learnt at which parties he would be likely to meet Osborne's sisters, and though he abhorred evening parties, he made his appearance at a ball where they were present. Here he danced a couple of sets with them and asked Miss Jane Osborne for a few minutes' conversation early next day, in order, he said, to give her news of the very greatest interest. Why did she start back and gaze upon him and then at the ground and act as if she would faint on his arm? Why was she so agitated? This can never be known. But when he came the next day, Miss Maria was not in the drawing-room with her sister, and Miss Wirt went off. The captain and Miss Osborne were left together in silence. "'What a nice party it was last night!' Miss Osborne at length began, encouragingly. And, "'And how you've improved in your dancing, Captain Dobbin. Surely somebody has taught you,' she added archly. "'You should see me dance a reel with Mrs. Major O'Dowd. But I, I think anybody could dance with you, Miss Osborne, who, who dance so well.' "'Is the Major's lady young and beautiful, Captain?' she continued. Ah, oh, how terrible it is to be a soldier's wife. I wonder they can dance in these dreadful times of war. Oh, Captain Dobbin, I tremble sometimes when I think of our dearest George and the dangers of the poor soldier. Are there many married officers in your regiment? Upon my word, she's playing her hand rather too openly. Miss Wirt thought from the crevice of the doorway. Well, one of our young men is just married, Dobbin said. It was a very old attachment, and the young couple are as poor as church mice. Oh, how delightful, how romantic, Miss Osborne cried. The finest young fellow in the regiment, he continued, encouraged. Not a braver or handsomer officer in the army, and, and such a charming wife. How you would like her. You will when you know her, Miss Osborne. The young lady thought the actual moment had arrived and prepared eagerly to listen. But it's, it's not about marriage that I came to speak. That is, uh, uh, no, I mean, my, my dear Miss Osborne, it's about our, our dear friend George, Dobbin said. About George? She said in a tone so discomfited that Maria and Miss Wirt laughed at the other side of the door, and even Dobbin felt inclined to smile, for he was aware of the state of affairs. "'Yes, sir, about George,' he continued. "'There has been a difference between him and Mr. Osborne. I regard him so highly that I hope the quarrel may be settled. We may be ordered abroad at a day's warning. Who knows what may happen in the campaign?' Oh, don't be agitated, dear Miss Osborne, but those two at least should part friends. Oh, there has been no quarrel, Captain Dobbin, except a little scene with Papa, the lady said. 
We are expecting George back daily. What Papa wanted was only for his good. He has only to come back, and all will be well. And dear Miss Swartz, who went away from here in sad anger, I know will forgive him. Woman forgives but too readily, Captain. Such an angel as you, I am sure, would, Mr. Dobbin said, with atrocious astuteness. What would you feel if a man were faithless to you? Oh, I should perish. I should take poison. I should pine and die, Miss cried, who had nevertheless gone through one or two affairs of the heart without any idea of suicide. And there are others, Dobbin continued, as true as yourself. I'm talking about a poor girl whom George once loved and, and who was bred from her childhood to think of nobody but him. I've seen her in her poverty, uncomplaining, broken-hearted, without a fault. It is of Miss Sedley I speak, dear Miss Osborne. Can your generous heart quarrel with your brother for being faithful to her? Could his own conscience ever forgive him if he deserted her? Be a friend. Please, I am come here charged by George to tell you that he holds his engagement to her as sacred, and to entreat you to be on his side." When any strong emotion possessed Mr. Dobbin, he could speak with eloquence, and this made some impression upon the lady. Well, said she, this is most surprising, most painful. What will papa say? But at any rate, George has found a very brave champion in you, Captain Dobbin. It is of no use, however. She continued after a pause. I feel for poor Miss Sedley. We were always very kind to her here. But Papa will never consent, I am sure. George must give her up, dear Captain Dobbin. Indeed, he must. Ought a man to give up the woman he loved, just when misfortune befell her? Dobbin said, holding out his hand. Dear Miss Osborne, is this the counsel I hear from you? My dear young lady, he must not give her up. Would a man think you give you up if you were poor? This adroit question touched the heart of Miss Jane Osborne. I don't know whether we poor girls ought to believe what you men say, Captain, she said. I'm afraid you are cruel, cruel deceivers. Dobbin thought he felt a pressure of her hand and dropped it in some alarm. Oh, deceivers! said he. Oh, no, no, dear Miss Osborne, not all men are. Your brother is not. George has loved Amelia ever since they were children. Ought he to forsake her? Would you tell him to do so? How could Miss Jane answer such a question? She parried it by saying, Well, if you are not a deceiver, at least you are very romantic. And Captain William let that pass without challenge. When he judged that Miss Osborne was sufficiently prepared to hear the whole news, he poured it out. George was married to Amelia. And then he related the circumstances of the marriage, how they had gone to Brighton in Joss's chariot for the honeymoon, and how George counted on his dear, kind sisters to befriend him with their father, as true and tender women would do. And so, asking permission readily granted, to see her again, and rightly guessing that the news would be told in the next five minutes to the other ladies, Captain Dobbin bowed.
and took his leave. He was scarcely out of the house when Miss Maria and Miss Word rushed in to see Miss Osborne and learnt the whole wonderful secret from her. To do them justice, neither of the sisters was very much displeased. There is something about a runaway match with which few ladies can be seriously angry, and Amelia rather rose in their estimation. As they prattled about the story and wondered what Papa would say, there was a loud knock which made them start. But it was only Mr. Frederick Bullock who had come to conduct the ladies to a flower show. This gentleman was soon told the secret. His amazement was very different to the sentimental wonder of the sisters. Mr. Bullock was a man of the world and a junior partner of a wealthy firm. He knew what money was, and a delightful throb of expectation lit up his little eyes and caused him to smile on his Maria as he thought that by Mr. George's folly she might be worth thirty thousand pounds more than he had hoped. Oh, God, Jane, said he. "'surveying even the elder sister with some interest. "'You may be a fifty-thousand-pounder yet.' "'The sisters had never thought about the money up to that moment, "'but Fred Bullock bantered them with graceful gaiety during their outing, "'and they had risen in their own esteem by the time they drove back to dinner. "'Well, this was only natural. "'Why, only this morning, when the omnibus I rode on stopped to change horses, I noticed three little children playing in a puddle, very dirty and friendly. Another little one came along. Polly, says she, your sister's got a penny. At which the children got up from the puddle instantly and ran off to pay their court to Peggy. And as the omnibus drove off, I saw Peggy with the infant procession at her tail, marching with great dignity towards a lollipop stall. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.